Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the newsroom of Business in Vancouver. I'm Kirk LaPointe, Editor-in-Chief. I thought we'd look today at uh, the year in review. 2019 has been fascinating around politics, around business, around social issues, and I thought we'd bring in our person who actually provides us with uh, that kind of content on what the public is thinking and anticipating what the public will be thinking uh, with Mario Canseco. He's the president of Research Co. here in Vancouver. He writes a column twice weekly for us at Glacier Media. Good to see you. Great to be here. Let's start, uh, let's start with politics. Um, you know, a couple of things happened. A couple of things happened this year. <laughs> uh, we'll start at the, at the top for our country with the federal election. Uh, this was, um, in a lot of ways, deemed as an election um, for the Conservatives to lose at some point. Uh, they did lose it. They did manage to do it. At, at year's end, what, what are the states of these various large parties? Let's start, start me there. Well, I think for the Liberals, it's mostly about learning the lesson, uh, which uh, has taken a little bit of time. I think they're still behaving like a government that is having a majority and can do whatever it wants to do. Uh, It's certainly complicated. I think there's going to be moments when the opposition parties are not going to be happy with the way that they have been doing things. But there's no pressure like the one that Stephen Harper faced, where an election could happen at any point. Uh, So that gives them a little bit of room to try to figure out where they want to take this, what types of big policies they want to put in front of the minority parliament. I think it's definitely more complex for the conservatives. Yeah, what what lessons did they learn? The conservatives uh, learned that uh, you cannot run a campaign for 40 days straight talking about ethics when the number of people in Canada who are voting based on ethics is already with you or is not going to move. So that was definitely problematic. There was a a difficulty in finding ways to connect with the electorate that moved to the liberals from the conservatives when Stephen Harper was the leader in the last election. And now they're heading into an April where they're going to be discussing whether to keep Andrew Scheer as leader. And all bets are off. I think anything can happen. There is uh, there's not a great deal of uh, uh, distance between ethics and values. And the conservatives seem to get tripped on their value <laughs> statements in this case by virtue of the social conservatism of its, of its leader. Um, is that the kind of thing now where the party has to just look at moving it moving past that with whoever next runs the party or because if, if Andrew Scheer is going to stay put clearly some of these issues will be there for them the next time too I think they have to move on from this uh, I think there was this game plan that was based in the one that actually delivered them their first victory under Stephen Harper their first minority government defeating Paul Martin back in 2006 we just need to keep talking about this issue and a lot of people will move from one side to the other but Trudeau was elected with a large majority he wasn't Paul Martin coming in taking over after Jan Cretien decided to retire or was pushed to retire. So it's a very complex situation where you cannot use the same game plan with somebody who, for all of the problems that he had in the year, was still very popular in Justin Trudeau. Before we take a look at, at regional impact of this election, uh, I want to get uh, both the NDP and the Green mentioned in here. Uh, the NDP two years ago, I think people were quite excited about Jagmeet Singh. A year ago, everybody was, he was like, dead man walking as a party. And then now he came back then in the spring and, and manifested a bit of a campaign that I think people got a little bit excited about. Uh, and the Greens, of course, appeared to be, uh, you know, again, between elections, registering pretty nice uh, poll numbers. They get into the actual election. They only elect a couple of people. Um, so w- what do we make of these two parties? How are they going to somehow coalesce or champion 
the left of center? It's going to be difficult, particularly for the Greens, because they are going to be in the middle of a leadership race. Uh, they'll have to figure out what type of uh, new political party they want to have uh, for the next little while. I don't think they can run in the same way that the Greens have been very successful, which is to have somebody who's very well known and then surrounding that particular person with other uh, you know, lesser known politicians. It worked very well for Andrew Weaver here in BC. It worked well for Elizabeth May in Ottawa. But now you have to think about how do do you structure a party? How do you maintain that uh, 11 or 12 percent of Canadians who at one point considered voting for the Greens to stay in double digits, which has been very difficult for them? And obviously, having a situation like the one we have now with the year in which the emphasis from the media standpoint was based on environmental concerns, mm -hmm. you don't climb the charts in 2019 with Greta Thunberg crossing the sea, then it's not going to happen unless you change your ways. Uh, we can talk about Wexit here in a minute, but let's uh, keep ourselves focused in this province here. How will the relationship between Ottawa and British Columbia shift, do you think, in the next number of years under this minority government? Well, the most important thing is to try to push the LNG file. I think that is going to be crucial for the governments, uh, both in Ottawa and in Victoria, to try to say, see, we can work together, things are going fine. There's also the infrastructure projects that are pending, particularly here in Metro Vancouver. Uh, it's opportunities to cut ribbons and to do things that are going to show. Unlike other provinces, too, our, our, we're actually, we've cut a lot of ribbons and spent a lot of money on this infrastructure, uh, on these infrastructure funds that we first started seeing in 2015. And, and it's important for the government as well, because the Liberals are fundamentally an urban party. They don't have a lot of seats in other parts of the province. They need to maintain uh, what they held on to in the last election. And one way to do so is to try to keep things different and, and, and to talk about specific issues that affect uh, Metro Vancouverites in the long run, you know, specifically when it comes to a, a public transit. Uh, we've, uh, we've talked on this podcast a few times about uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline and, um, and actually the, the kind of you know, surprising support that exists for it even in Metro Vancouver, that it's not uh, as opposed as many think. But again, how do the Liberals manage this issue here over the next number of years? The biggest problem they have is that they're getting chided from both sides. Uh, if you're an environmentalist who is against this pipeline going through, you're going to be upset with the government regardless of what they do. If you're a fiscal conservative, you're upset because you wanted this file to be handled differently and for the bitumen to already be flowing mm -hmm. to foreign markets. So whatever they do is going to be detrimental to the cause because it's a scenario where there's groups that are definitely not happy with the way you've been doing things. Uh, this project might go through and it's already being built, um, but it's not going to make a lot of people change their minds as far as the actual performance of the government. On one side, they think they took too long, and on the other one, they think this should never have happened in the first place. Of course, the pipeline ends in Burnaby, but it starts in Alberta, and Alberta <laughs> is pretty grumpy right now at year's end. Jason Kenney has made a meal out of this alienation piece, as you know, as has Scott Moe, the, the uh, premier of Saskatchewan. Um, is Wexit real? I don't think it is. And the reason I don't think it is, is that if you look at a movement like what we saw in Quebec um, before the 1995 referendum, where you had politicians who had already been elected, who were upset at things, who were trying to change the system from within, uh, and essentially saying, you know, this is what we think is best, and we think that you should follow us. 
this is a movement that is built towards selling hats and T-shirts. <laughs> um, Quebec had Jacques Parizeau, who was one of the biggest minds of the separatist movement, somebody who could, who could fill a room and to talk about specific issues that affected a people that felt compelled to be there. These guys have Inspector Clouseau. You know, this is not something that is going to be working very well. Yeah. There is a lot of people who are upset, and that's understandable. Um, but it's not a situation where you can look at yourself and believe that you're somehow Catalonia or the Basque Country. Nothing unites you except spite for Ottawa. But alienation can somehow springboard into something far more, well, far more profound here. Um, how do the liberals as a, as a federal government make sure that that doesn't particularly happen here? Well, I think the key here is to continue those discussions uh, with Jason Kenney. You know, Jason Kenney, Justin Trudeau talking, trying to figure out a way to bridge those gaps. Uh, I think uh, the situation right now in Alberta is different because I don't, I don't think they expect the level of animosity that they see. And now they are the ones who are saying, well, we don't really mean it when we say we should separate. But the rhetoric following those months, not only from elected politicians, but also from so-called C-celebrities, uh, was part of the reason why we're in this mess. And now you have all of those people saying, well, we didn't really mean it that way. We just wanted Ottawa to pay attention to us. Don't fan those flames if you're, if you're not going to be able to put out the fire. So Jason Kenney has to be wary as well. Absolutely. I think it's definitely problematic. I mean, I, I don't see a situation here where uh, you'll have federal conservatives suddenly forming the separatist party, uh, because the only thing they would do is to push the level of support for the conservatives down. And it's been consistently over 60% in the last few elections. Let's go back to our province. Um, again, we're uh, halfway in, uh, in a four-year mandate, a four-year mandate that I think a lot of us thought wouldn't be a four-year mandate in a minority government in this province, and yet it has managed to do that. The Green leader is going to step down, Andrew Weaver, in January, but it doesn't mean that his party is going to stop uh, with its covenant with the NDP. It seems prepared to sustain them through the through the thing. What are you seeing in terms of a um, a maturing of this government? In its, as it reaches into its third year? Well, I think they've struck the right chord on a couple of things. I think the, the, the idea of having the housing taxes implemented has continued to be very popular. Uh, it's something that appeals to the Metro Vancouver base that they have. It's something that helps the younger Vancouverite, who is usually more likely to vote for the NDP, to say, yes, they are in the right course of action. Um, there's also been a lot of nuance when it comes to the relationship with Ottawa, which is definitely better than what we've seen before. Uh, but I also think they are benefiting from an opposition that is still trying to figure out what they want to do. Right. Um, the BC Liberals went from having a leader who was dangerously uneducated but incredibly charismatic to somebody who is dangerously uncharismatic and incredibly educated. <laughs> and it's very difficult to bridge that gap. I don't think it's going to be easy for somebody like Andrew Wilkinson to fill a room and to talk about certain things that the government should be doing when he doesn't have the gravitas that Christy Clark had. It you can see, um, like a lot of governments, uh, they move into the middle uh, quite a bit. Um, you may have campaigned on the left, but you move into the middle. It's certainly been the trick for the liberals over the years. Uh, the NDP seems to be pulling off a little bit of a modified version of this. Uh, does that leave the liberals any room except to perhaps tack to the right? Well, and if that happens, what are we going to see 
with the nascent BC Conservatives. Now, we're still in a situation where there's not a lot of people who know who the leader is, and they always run into the same problem of having candidates in every single riding. So the BC Conservative rebirth could actually be seen in a way like what happened with the People's Party at the national level. You know, you make a little noise, you talk about a couple of policies, and you still get one or two percent of the people to vote for you. But if this is a much more nuanced conservative movement that is actually hitting the BC Liberals on their base, then this could be ideal for the NDP to say, we are here, we are now the centrist party that is talking about progress, that is talking about certain things that are important for the enterprise community, and it's going to be difficult for people to go back. Because without an Andrew Weaver, um, the Green Party may lack that visible leader, may lack that um, person with a a certain prominence or an iconic status. Uh, Do the Greens simply disappear provincially? You go back to the level uh, that we observed in other elections. You continue to be somewhat of a a, a protest party. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, before the last election in 2017, their biggest numbers were in 2001, but that was a crazy election because a lot of people knew that that the NDP was going to lose badly and, you know, we had a very weird situation happening with the voter turnout, but essentially you go back to being a party that is going to be there, uh, maybe have three or four seats, but if the NDP plans this correctly, they can have a majority and not have to appeal to the Greens at, at every turn to, to be able to stay in government. Let's turn ourselves over to the economy a bit. We might as well just use the discussion on provincial politics as a segue to this, because when Carol James revealed the quarterly results um, in the province in the last week or two, uh, there's still a bit of a surplus there. It's dwindling. Uh, very clearly, they're going to be using those contingency funds. Uh, everybody's <laughs> going to be collecting pop bottles uh, to get to the end of the year. Do you think the NDP will run a deficit in 2020? It might. I think it depends on a couple of Do factors. people care? Do people I care? don't think so. Mm. You know, going back to, to the 2015 election, uh, the moment the tide shifted for Tom Mulcair was when he said, I'm not going to run a deficit. Mm. Uh, and, mm. you know, Justin Trudeau said, you know, deficits are necessary. Maybe this is something that we need to do because we haven't had the services that we require. Uh, if it's something that is going to be done to finance election promises, it might make sense for the people who voted for the NDP, like those who are still waiting for an equivalent to 10-a-day childcare, for instance. Yes. If this is going to be done, then I'm fine with having deficits. But it's it's no longer uh, an issue that is going to make or break the way parties run in uh, specific uh, campaigns. And, and this is a province that is now more used to that than it was before. Um, apart from the really miserable job numbers that came out last week, um, <laughs> British Columbia continues to have uh, the country's best performing economy. Uh, yet there are economic headwinds. Everyone is beginning to feel them. Uh, and you can start to see some of the jobless rate uh, indications of that. Um, How well is our province prepared for a downturn globally? Well, I think it depends uh, on a couple of factors. You know, whatever happens in the United States is definitely going to play a role. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the fact that there's a surplus right now certainly helps. You know, we're not in the same situation that other provinces are facing as far as having some sort of downturn. The fact that the new NAFTA has been ratified probably helps, although its effects are not going to be shown until maybe six or seven months down the road. Um, But it's, it's a good situation. It's not the type of situation that we had in the late 1990s when, you know, if we had a a major financial crisis uh, with a government that's deep in debt, uh, the situation is definitely worse than, than anything. Around the economy, um, clearly the, um, the biggest eyesore for the, uh, for the uh, New Democrats right now is the forestry sector. Uh, what has to happen there 
in order for the NDP to not risk political capital seriously. The name of the game there is job creation. I think that is the key to the exercise. It's more about uh, trying to minimize those reports about towns that are being uh, left behind, uh, job losses. You know, that is one of the issues that they need to focus on because this is the one thing that really moves voters to one side or the other, you know, when it becomes something that is affecting you deeply. You know, we we had many discussions about uh, the way in which right hailing was handled because you didn't want to affect somebody who had a friend or a cousin or an uncle who had a, a license for a cab. Yeah. Um, this is a similar situation, only it's not happening in Metro Vancouver, which is... No, I, 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 most of we, we have ride hailing. We just, you, you just flag a taxi. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's what it's called. Uh, right. um, one of the big newsmakers of the year, of course, was, and not of her own making, was Meng Wanzhou, uh, the CFO of Huawei, who has been detained... Um, although I think a lot of us would like that kind of detention in a $13 million Shaughnessy house. Um, <laughs> but she has been uh, detained here for more than a year. That event, of course, has entire color, entirely colored our relationship as a country with China, and for that matter, with the United States. Um, first of all, the handling of this over the course of the year. Uh, the Canadian government clearly was pawned in this. Uh, by by the Trump administration and certainly by the United States Department of Justice. Um, China also seems to have been uh, by the Trump administration. Uh, it's funny because he was the one who called Trudeau two-faced. Right. Well, so how do, how do, how does everyone get out of this one? Well, I think what, what I see from uh, most Canadians when I ask them is uh, there's a sense of wariness about China, and it's yeah. definitely higher in British Columbia, partly because of the foreign ownership, partly because of the way in which uh, the new type of immigrant from mainland China has been behaving and the way they are being perceived. It's different from the situation that we saw when we had uh, all of those immigrants coming in from Hong Kong in the late 1990s, for instance. So there's a different attitude. There's a sense that everything is connected to the central government. Huawei is connected to the central government. We can no longer talk about Hong Kong because somebody is going to be upset. Um, it's a delicate balance. Uh, but there's definitely not a lot of appetite from Canadians to be closer to China. If anything, there's dismay at the fact that we have a couple of people who have been detained yeah. unfairly. Mm-hmm. And in spite... At least we think, we think unfairly. Yeah. We're, we're, we can't be sure of that. But yes, okay. Well, we haven't seen the charges, right? Exactly. I, yeah. I, I, Fine. I, yeah. we, we would need to see that. Uh, but there's also a, a lot of support for the idea that if there's somebody in your territory... Uh, who has been detained, and there's a restraining order or something that you need to comply with internationally, you have to do it. So uh, there's that. But there's also the notion of, of Huawei being an arm of the Chinese government and a lot of apprehension towards the idea of Huawei participating in the development of the 5G network. So this one isn't going to get better quickly because there's a, so many things that are connected to yeah, it. Yeah, this is a true dilemma for the Trudeau government, because because as goes this decision, so could go the country's relationship with uh, with you know the fastest growing economy in the world, second second largest in the world. Um, so let's then go right back to the top on this one and look at uh, the the federal government. What has it done in order to make itself ready for a decision like this, knowing the consequences could be rather dire in either our relationship with the second most powerful economy or the first 
Well, uh, changing the ambassador was definitely a good thing. Uh, <laughs> the previous ambassador made many, many mistakes that have been well documented. Um, that is definitely problematic. And I think there's a sense as well of um, looking into this not necessarily as an issue that is driven by economics, but that, that is driven by Canadian values. And I think that's been the biggest uh, difficulty in trying to advance the idea of, well, look, we, we may not be happy with these people, but we need them. They're a big economy. We need to... Uh, you know, be trade partners in this. Uh, but there's also many Canadians who are dissatisfied with the fact that we are essentially doing things that are could be deemed un-Canadian just for the sake of money. So I think it's a very delicate balance that they need to to figure out. And and ultimately, what we've seen over the past few years, we, with every dealing with uh, between China and, and governments in North America, has always been a situation where nothing is enough. They're always upset about something or disappointed about something. So you're not going to come out of this shaking hands uh, with anybody and, and, and being perfectly happy. You know, we, we know there's going to be difficult times ahead. Well, we're going to have to leave it off there, but it's, it's been an interesting 2019. 2020, I think, though, is going to be even more fascinating. Well, 2020 is going to be, we have an election in the States that I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. Is there? Is there one? Yeah. yeah. Uh, who's running? Um, uh, <laughs> well, that's the thing, right? Yes, we yeah. don't know yet. Exactly. Mario Canseco, always good to see you. Always good to get your advice. My pleasure, Kirk. Thank you. Mario Canseco is the president of ResearchCo. And you've been listening to BIB Today. I'm Kirk LaPointe.